All right, we're in Mark chapter 3. Y'all forgive me, I'm a little emotional this morning. The Lord has been good. If I cry, I don't tell my kids because they'll make fun of me for three weeks. They've decided that they're my bullies in the last week or so. We're in Mark 3. We're going to start in verse 7. We'll read through 21 today. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we love you so much. We are so thankful for your presence, your goodness, for the blood of Jesus to redeem us, to wash us. And we thank you that in your grace and kindness, you come and crucify our selfishness, our self-absorbed attitudes, our jealousy and bitterness. We thank you, Lord, that through this word, you, you shape us into the image of Jesus. And we are so, so in love with you this morning. And somebody say, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I thought this week as I studied and tried to meditate on the text, I thought about this period in the 80s where um, Peter Wagner and John Wimber, they taught a course together at Fuller Theological Seminary. And the course was on um, power evangelism and church growth. Uh, Peter Wagner, don't hear me say that I'm, that I'm fully endorsing everything he wrote. There's some other things in his theology that I don't like too much. Um, but he was primarily a missiologist at this point, meaning he was studying missions and what the Lord was doing around the world and how God was moving. And one of the things that he found as he studied was that where the gospel was going forth and was the most effective, the most, the places in the world where churches were being planted and people were coming to faith, those places had a common theme. And the theme was that the missionaries were not just preaching but they were preaching and praying for people. And so they preached the gospel and then they would pray. And I'll, this was so controversial for Western thinkers, but they would pray for people who believed their children were demon oppressed or people who were having nightmares. They would pray for sick people. And as they preached and prayed, um, the spirit began to move and take root of these communities. And now what they realized is that so many missionaries in, in the West, in the, in America, were trained in seminaries, um, and their primarily, primary training was, you need to intellectually be able to build the case for the gospel. Now, that is a part of preaching and a part of evangelism, to build the case for the gospel, but they had left out anything to do with praying for people, and believing God to heal, and believing God to deliver, and really caring for the downtrodden. So they thought of themselves as arguers, and not ministers to the heart and to the soul of people. So they began to, Wimber and uh, Wagner began to teach this course at Fuller on, um, again, preaching faithfully, but but also doing what the scriptures say to do. That was kind of John Wimber's life. Let's do what the gospel says and pray for the sick. And um, the course at Fuller at the time, I don't know if it still is, I think it may be, was the, the most attended course that they had ever presented. People just blew up coming to learn. And what Wimber was really exhorting them concerning evangelism was, again, to do what Jesus did, to do what the apostles did, to do what Jesus commanded the 70 to do, and what the early church did. And in the last hundred years around the world, the church has grown faster than it's ever grown in history. More people have come to Jesus than ever. Ironically, in the United States and in the um, educated West, the church is declining at the fastest rate that it's ever declined. And you're kind of forced to ask the question, like maybe the maybe the churches in the West are declining because we're we're turning everything into this kind of sharing of information. There's so much liberal theology in the United States, which doesn't even believe the scripture to be authoritative. It just becomes 
the pastor becomes the interpreter of the world and encourages and shares. They preach on felt needs, the things that they think you need to hear. And we just kind of slowly disconnected ourselves from the basics of the gospel. So we think of ourselves as really smart, but disconnect ourselves from the gospel is really dumb. And our churches are being, why the churches in Brazil, the churches in China, even the churches in places like Iran have, are they're, they're ding, 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 climbing up as people are giving their hearts to Jesus. Now, forgive me because I may ramble a bit, but my thoughts are jumbled, but I'm trying to tie a single theme. I was talking to, um, I was talking to, to Zach and Shelby this, this weekend about when Haley and I first got married, Haley was told that there was a strong chance she would never be able to get pregnant. Now you can laugh at that now because we have 46 kids. Um, so the doctor said, when you get married, the sooner you start trying to have kids, the better. Um, and so we were, I think I was 22 and Haley would tell you that she didn't even know if she wanted to have kids until the doctor said that. And then she went, Oh no, we better start now. And so we were like two months into our marriage. Well, I'll tell you this. Haley was so scared. She would talk about it. You know, I might not be able to have kids. I might not. And I would quote to her from the Psalms where the, uh, the psalmist said that the righteous man's table would be, have vines with olives around it. And, um, and I was just saying, no, God's going to give us children. God's going to give us children. And I know many, even in the room, struggle with infertility. It's such a hard, hard thing, a biblical thing to struggle with. And um, two months into our marriage, we were young and peppy. She got pregnant, and we told everybody we were so excited. God, God is going to give us kids. We were just thrilled. And we were, I mean, we were tickled, man. And um, we went for an ultrasound one day. And I know many of you have been through this experience. But when you're 22, you don't, you're just dumb. You don't know. And we went to an ultrasound. I was on 10 until they couldn't find the heartbeat. And they were looking, looking, looking. And you could see the look on their face. They couldn't find the heartbeat. And then the doctor comes in to explain to us that the baby's um, not alive and that Haley's going to need a procedure uh, to, to clean out because her body hadn't acknowledged that the baby wasn't alive and rejected uh, the, the birth. And I was in shock. I, again, I was young. I never thought that miscarriage was an option. I know, again, many of us have experienced it. For some reason, we don't talk about it much. Um, but so Haley had the procedure, and um, she got up from the bed the next day to go to the bathroom and just bleeding everywhere. And like I'm like cleaning up blood off the ground and was so incredibly broken and in despair. And I was thinking about this encounter, this moment in my life, which was weird, just a weird moment. Last night as I laid in bed, I couldn't sleep. Imagine that. And I started to think about all the time that Jesus stopped for parents. Because there's no pain, as far as I'm concerned, emotional pain. Like the pain of a parent with a child, when a child gets a bad diagnosis, or a child has a great illness, um, or, or a child passes. I don't, I don't know that there's another pain. You know what I'm saying? You could, you could punch me in the face all day long. You punch my daughter. We, we are going to scrap. I'm going to teach you a thing or two. I'm like, I can't, I can't deal with my children in pain. And so I started to think about Jesus's ministry. And I'm saying all this to say that so many, many times we think about the signs and wonders and the power of Jesus as solely being an expression of his authority to testify to his deity. In other words, we're taught in the West that Jesus healed sick people to show that he was God. And, and I wanted to show you from the scripture that Jesus does do that but Jesus also healed sick people because he knew the pain and the trauma and the suffering that they were walking in. And so just think with me quickly. Um, there was a widow whose, whose 
husband had passed as she had one son and the ball bearers were carrying her dead son through the city. The scripture says Jesus's heart was tugged and he walked over and put his hand on the young man and told him to get up. Jairus was a Jewish man, was a great Jewish man who led synagogue, was righteous. The scripture says his daughter was 12 years old and she got very sick. And he, Jairus comes to Jesus and begs, please come heal my daughter. And Jesus walks into the room after she's already passed. And everyone says, Jesus says, she's just sleeping. And they all begin to laugh and mock him. Jesus tells that little girl to get up. There was an official whose son had passed. And the official says, Jesus, I'm a man under authority and I have men under authority just say, just say that he'd be healed, and I know he would. And Jesus says, what faith I see in this father who's desperate. The man went home, and his son was healed. There was a Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician woman, the scripture says, who came to Jesus with her, her daughter was demonically oppressed. She, had, she was filled with demons. And she comes to Jesus, and she says, I know that you can heal my daughter. And Jesus says, I was sent to the house of Israel. And it's not right to feed Gentiles, to give to dogs. That was an insult to Gentiles. He's quoting kind of a common insult not right to give the dogs bread. And the woman said, oh, even dogs get to eat from the scraps of the table. And Jesus said, oh, woman, your faith has made you well, made her well. And that daughter was healed. There was a man who had a son with epilepsy. He called it epilepsy. And he was being thrown into fires. And the father comes to Jesus and says, oh, please heal my son. And he's got epilepsy. And Jesus actually doesn't call it epilepsy. He calls it a demon. And he casts it out. And the boy was healed. It was an evil, unclean spirit, the scripture says. And I just thought about all these times where Jesus is healing and all of these expressions of authority do testify to his lordship, to his deity. But, but, but also they testify to his heart. The heart of God when a parent comes and says, my daughter's ate up with demons. And, and, and Jesus says, look, I'm not supposed to be doing Gentiles yet. That's later. And she says, oh, please let me eat the scraps of your healing ministry. And Jesus looks at a broken woman and says, you're your, your faith will heal you. Um, we, we don't want to miss the heart of God. We, we don't want to miss the compassion and the empathy of Jesus for people. As we step into our text this morning, we're going to see that Jesus, the scripture says, is being crushed, literally crushed by the crowds. Crowds are flocking to him. They're, 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 it says that diseased people are crushing his body because they're all grabbing him to be healed. And, and, and as Jesus is being crushed by the, by the crowds, we're going to see that he does not grow frustrated. I think there's good implication in the text that he grows tired. But he doesn't grow frustrated and say, quit, I'm just doing a few things to show that I'm God. But rather, he begins to establish apostles as if to say, there are too many people that are sick and need healing, and not everybody can touch me. And so he begins to give his authority to 12 apostles so that they will carry forward the ministry that, that he initiates. And what I want to show you today, I hope I can show you with good argumentation, that that carrying forward that he gives to the apostles, although the apostles have a unique position, yes, we'll talk about that, was intended to also be imparted to the disciples. So not only do this, the apostles drive out demons, but the 70 are going to drive out, not just the 12, but the 70 are going to drive out demons. And do you remember the 70 come back to Jesus and they say, we've seen all these demons cast down. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Don't rejoice that demons flee from you, but that your names are written in the book of life. Um, what we find, though, is that it was, it was integral to, to not just testifying to Jesus' deity to heal sick people and to drive out demons. 
It was integral to his heart and to the gospel itself to heal sick people and to bring wholeness to people who were oppressed by evil spirits that were attempting to mar the image of God in their life. You guys kind of catch what I'm trying to build today? I'll do my best to build it, but if you'll follow me, because again, I am, I am a little uh, di- not distracted. My mind's going in many directions. Because I'm so smart that there's too many thoughts happening at once. <laughs> Just what it is. <laughs> Verse 7 of chapter 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Emmaus and far beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell face down and began to cry out, You are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make, make this known. Verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. The other synoptics, Luke's gospel tells us that he goes up on the mountain to pray. And after praying, he calls to those to whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. One, they might be with him. Two, so that he might send them out to preach. And three, that they would have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name um, Bonirgus, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Okay, he can't eat dinner because there's so many people pressing. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. First, um, let's remember that what Mark showed us in his gospel so far, and what we're transitioning out of, although it's going to get a bookend next week, what we're transitioning out of is this this sequence of events where Jesus um, calls a tax collector to be a disciple. And do you remember the Pharisees say, um, he eats with tax collectors and sinners, this isn't of God. And Jesus responds and says, I'm a physician who comes for sick people, man. So, so Jesus is critiqued, and then he responds with good logic and Bible, and he keeps going anyway. The next thing that happens is the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees come and say, look, your disciples are eating and we're fasting. You should be mourning and fasting sin like we are. And Jesus says, no, this is a celebration that, that the bridegroom has come. This is a time of joy, not a time of mourning and you can't put you can't put new wine in old wineskins that are all fall apart. And Jesus says, in other words, I'm doing something new. My movement is not like your movement. And the central heart of my movement will be joy and celebration and thanksgiving. The, th- the third thing that happens is Jesus is walking with his disciples on the Sabbath. And as he's teaching his disciples, they're picking heads of grains and eating. They're just kind of snacking. And so some Pharisees come and say, you can't you can't harvest on Sabbath. And Jesus says, number one, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, so I do what I want. And And, and number two... The Sabbath is given to bless people, not to curse people. So you're interpreting Sabbath law wrong. The the idea of just snacking through a field with your rabbi and talking about God is not work. It's leisure. Um, and you're looking at every angle to try to find a place to condemn me rather than acknowledging that what's happening here is life-giving and transforming lives. Then it, then it comes to this place where Jesus is in the synagogue and a man comes in with a withered hand. And he says to the crowd, they're all looking at him to see what he'll do. And he says to the crowd, is it, is it lawful to heal or to destroy on the Sabbath? 
Nobody says anything. All the religious folks have something to say until Jesus confronts it, and then they shut up and watch. And Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand and be healed. The man's hand is healed. And again, Jesus is showing us that the law, and especially Sabbath law, is not to crush people. And his heart can't watch a withered man come to synagogue and be ignored. Okay, you hear it? The heart of God, the heart of Jesus, watches a sick man come into the temple and says, the power of God is able to heal him. He suffered for many years. And Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And the scripture tells us that immediately when the man's healed, the Pharisees begin to partner with another group, the Herodians, who they hate to try to destroy Jesus, to kill Jesus. Now we're starting to transition in the text. And so as we're transitioning this morning, it tells us that Jesus tries to withdraw. Now, I think one of two things is happening. He may be withdrawing because he's just physically exhausted. There's so many people pressing around him. I think there's a good case to say also that he's withdrawing because he's been critiqued over and over again. And he, he wants to go get alone with the Father, to hear the Father's heart, to be refreshed and restored. But as he withdraws, so again, he's been critiqued and people are pressing him everywhere. As he withdraws, people just keep coming. I think there's something to say, and commentators point this out too, that the religious elite critique the snot out of him. But when you have the power of God in your midst, the crowd just keeps coming anyway. And so it's sometimes, church, sometimes when we start to try to move in the heart of God and care for people, you can be critiqued to your blue in the face. But remember that if we're in God's heart and we're trusting his word and we're ministering, um, Jesus says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Hell will rage and foam at the mouth, but she can't prevail against God's spirit uh, being expressed faithfully through his people. So, so Jesus, Jesus has been critiqued, the snot out of him, but he still can't even move because there's so many people coming to touch him. Now, what the text tells us is that they're coming from multiple cities. Mark lists seven locations in which people are flocking to Jesus from Jerusalem, Judea, Idumea. That's a southern city where Herod's family comes from. That doesn't particularly, um, we'll just say that it's a political, it would be a strange place for people to be flocking to Jesus from, but they're coming anyway. Um, Tyre and Sidon. So when we talk about the Gentile woman who came with her demonically oppressed daughter who was, who, to be healed, that was in uh, Tyre and Sidon. That area is, is mostly Gentile. So we know that there are Gentiles coming too. So Jesus is going out to the sea to try to get some, some rest and to get away from the drama. And essentially all of geographical Israel is chasing him. They're just flocking and running and chasing him. Now, the principal attraction of the crowds is demonic deliverance and physical healing. And so they're, they're chasing Jesus because they're sick. We've got parents, again, with kids with chronic diseases, chasing Jesus because they're desperate for their kids to be healed. We've got parents with kids who have demons, can't sleep at night, are being thrown into fires. They're chasing Jesus because they're desperate for their kids to be healed. We've got many, many blind men chasing Jesus. We've got lepers chasing Jesus. Jesus is being pursued because of the power of God on his life to heal and to deliver and to bring wholeness. Verse 10 says, he healed many and all who were diseased, they pressed around him. Now in a chapter or so, Jesus will tell us that when you preach the gospel, um, you can preach to large crowds and he gives us the parable of the sower, right? And some sort of good soil, some shallow soil, So we know just from Jesus' own life that not everyone who pursues him for a miraculous touch comes with a pure heart. They won't all receive the gospel. And um, 
Or think of the lepers, right? Ten lepers come to Jesus. He heals all ten of them, praise God. But only one comes back with a thankful heart. There are many who, who want to touch Jesus' power, but they don't want to bow their knee to his lordship. Now, that happens in every generation, and that's a shame. But even that, 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 that event, that fact that people want to touch Jesus and don't want to submit to his power doesn't make Jesus stop operating in power and stop healing. He just keeps pressing forward in his God-given ministry to bring healing to the broken and to those desperate. Now, from here, I want to sidestep for just a moment because I think it's important to try to digest uh, something concerning the Gospels. We're reading the life of the Son of God, fully God, fully man. And so we don't want to read the life of Jesus as if everything Jesus does and hears is perfectly related to to us, if that makes sense. Jesus is unique. He's uniquely the Son of God. Jesus is the only one who didn't sin. Okay, and so there's a distinction there. We want to ask the question, how much of Jesus' life and ministry is intended to flow through through the church? Are there there some instances, for for instance, Jesus' glorification? Do you remember he goes on the mountain and he's transfigured, right? And to all of his glory. And Moses and Elijah come and talk with him. Um, I think you could pray until you're dead and you're not going to transfigure into deity. Okay, I, don't, I think that's something unique to Jesus. It's, it's not intended to be fleshed out into all of the church. But related to these issues, to, to preaching, to healing, to deliverance, we want to ask the question, how much did Jesus intend for his 12 apostles to carry forward? And then we want to ask the question, was that unique to the apostles? Or did he intend for us to also carry forward? Because... Because if we're, if what we find in the text is that Jesus' heart for the church was that the church would carry the authority of his name to continue to heal the sick and cast out demons, we, we might want to be obedient to it. You guys, you guys kind of following my train of thought? So let me just show you a few things and, and I'll try not to take too much time. Um, one, does, are Jesus' miracles intended to be a sign of his deity to his messianic role? The plain answer is yes. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 10 through 12. This was a text that rabbinic teachers looked to to describe what the Messiah would be like. And the text says, There had not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, who the Lord knew face to face. So Israel was looking for one day a prophet who would know God face to face in perfect intimacy, which Jesus obviously fulfills. None like him for all of the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants. So Messiah would... to Two attributes here. He would know God face-to-face in perfect intimacy. And Messiah would perform great signs and wonders. And so, like John the Baptist, for instance, was a great prophet, but he wasn't marked by signs and wonders. Messiah would have to have signs and wonders being expressed in his life to be considered Messiah. And so, yes, the signs and wonders do testify to his deity. John recorded at the end of his, his gospel, he said, I wrote you these seven signs so that you might believe in John 20, verse 30 through 31. So John says, look at all the miracles that Jesus did. Man, how could he not be God? So there's an apologetic or an argumentation which says he was raised from the dead. He's God. And that's a perfectly biblical idea that Jesus is doing miracles to show his deity. So the answer to the question, does Jesus do signs and wonders to show that he's God is obviously yes. But his expression of miraculous power is not limited exclusively to the idea of authenticating his own ministry. What I'm trying to argue is that the expression of his power is also not even secondarily, but maybe even equally as important 
to bless and heal and see the children of God delivered from Satan's minions who are trying to destroy their lives. And so um, just kind of follow me here. He's going to heal people and he's going to say, don't tell anybody what I just did. As we saw in Mark 1, chapter 44, when he healed a leper and said, go tell the priest, but I don't want you to tell anybody. If he's just trying to prove that he's God, he would probably say, announce it from the mountaintops. Two, we, we see Jesus, um, people coming, lepers coming to Jesus already saying, you can make me clean. And the scripture says, Jesus was moved with pity. That means the heart of God broke. The heart of Jesus sees his own creation tormented by disease and, and moved with compassion and pity. He stretches out his hand to heal. So it's clear from these two simple points that the healing ministry of Jesus is not limited exclusively to only authenticating his ministry. Furthermore, we see many other people performing signs and wonders. Obviously the 12, but we also see people like Stephen. Stephen in Acts 6-8, who was a deacon. He was not an apostle. The scripture says he was full of grace and power and did great signs and wonders among the people. So, so Stephen's doing signs and wonders and he's honored for it in the scripture. Therefore, it can't just be, th- to be done by Jesus to authenticate his own ministry. I, I would argue that Stephen's signs and wonders authenticate the ministry of Jesus because he's expressing and carrying forth ministry in Jesus' name. Again, we mentioned before, but Jesus says to the 70, I want you to go cast out demons. And they come back and say, we cast out so many demons, man. And Jesus says, I know you did, but, but you should be even more glad that you're forgiven and saved. And think of this encounter. The disciples come to Jesus and say, we met a man who was casting out demons in your name. And we told him to stop. And Jesus says, don't stop him. Anyone who casts out demons in my name cannot come later and spit on me, essentially. So we have people not even in, uh, not even necessarily in the crowd of the disciples doing things in Jesus' name. And Jesus says, don't stop it. Let it roll on. The greatest theologian himself, the apostle Paul, says he came to the saints not with logic, not with great argumentation, or at least he comes with logic, but he doesn't come with eloquence. But he comes with the power of God so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so Paul teaches us that as he plants churches, he comes and prays for the power of God to be manifested. Now, I'm running out of time, but let me say this. There's sometimes an argumentation that goes, the 12 apostles were unique. And so Jesus imparted in our text today, I'll give it to you quick. He called the apostles to a mountain. Now, this feels Moses-like. The commentators want you to see that. The scripture wants you to see that. This feels like Moses calling Israel to receive the law. He's been praying on the mountain. He calls, and the text literally reads, he makes them apostles. It doesn't read, it reads more naturally in the English to say he called them apostles or appointed them apostles. But the Greek says he made them apostles. And it, and it, and it reflects the, the Hebrew language of Genesis 1 of creating. And so, so the idea is not just that he said, I'm now going to call you apostles, but that he imparted to them a power, a, a, an authority that transformed their lives and they became something different. And he obviously chose 12 to reflect the 12 um, fathers of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's new creation image and language that's happening here. And then he tells the apostles, I give you the authority of my name to preach and to drive out demons, to preach and to drive out demons. So some will argue that those things were limited to the 12. Gosh, let me, let me just give me 20 seconds. You guys are the slowest listeners in all of the world. And it, and it drives me nuts. 
Um, let me say this. The apostles, capital A apostles, do have a unique role, primarily in that they were eyewitnesses, and, and God called them to give a scripture. Okay, and so I do not believe that there are capital A apostles in the earth today, meaning I don't believe there's anybody in the earth today who walked with Jesus and because no one walked with Jesus in the earth today, they can't tell me something about Jesus that contradicts what those who did walk with Jesus said. They have a unique authority because they were there. Okay, you can't go to court and testify about something that you weren't even born of when it happened. You weren't there. And so they have a unique authority in that they were there. And number two, that unique authority was to give scriptures. So I believe in capital A apostles in the sense that any, anyone who calls themselves an apostle or a prophet today and prophesies to you and expects you to hold that word higher or equal to the scriptures, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. But I absolutely believe that there are lowercase apostolic people today. By the way, I don't think they're looking for a title. I don't think they're looking for everyone to honor them with reverence. But lower apostolic people who are carrying the authority of Jesus to see new regions come uh, come to the gospel. So I think there are people who are gifted to bring evangelism and church planning together to tackle new regions with ministry. Oh. So yes, the apostles do have a uniqueness about them, the 12. But nowhere in the scriptures are we told that they were the only ones who were to carry forth the heart of Jesus in his ministry to heal the sick and drive out demons. But rather in the scriptures, what we see is that as they carried forth the heart of God to drive out demons and heal, they also seemed to pass that along to their disciples and the people they were raising up. So it wasn't just the apostles who who healed people, but Stephen healed people who was a deacon. It wasn't just the apostles who prophesied. But the, but the sons of, of Philip, or the daughters of Philip prophesied. And so it seems that the apostles did have a unique role, but they intended that you also, the church also, carry forth the heart of Jesus to love people well and to believe God's power to bring them to wholeness as we present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I'll, I'll start to wind down. Worship team, come for me, because I think I can wrap this together by saying this. I think particularly in the 50s with um, healing evangelists and like TV became really popular and people started, you know, healing evangelists. And I'm, I'm not necessarily throwing stones. I'm just drawing an observation. They'd bring a sick person on stage and then they'd kind of pray and make them get up and walk. And I think sometimes they were legitimately healed, but it's obvious that sometimes they weren't. And they were just kind of people became a prop. And and what, what the church has done wrong, from my perspective, is Jesus wants us to heal and to pray for sick out of pure compassion and love for people, not to use someone who's broken as a prop to display how great and spiritual I am. Um, what, what, I, what I hope and what I think God's going to do in this hour is that the, the, the moving of the Spirit, for, the, for those who believe and try to step into praying for people who are demonically oppressed, praying for the sick, it's going to be intricately tied to the gospel again. The greatest mistake the church has made is I know of many groups who go out on the streets and pray for the sick, and sometimes they see healing, but they never share the gospel. They disconnect healing from talking about Jesus' blood and salvation and redemption. But when we bring them back together, what we're saying ultimately is God loves you so much. He paid for your biggest problem, which is your sin. He's going to forgive you and adopt you as a son and daughter. God loves you so much. We're going to pray and believe God to cast this demon out of your life. God loves you so much. We're going to pray and believe God to heal your sick and frail body. And, and what we find there, again, is that the Apostle Paul says, you can pray with the tongues of angels. You can throw yourself in fire. But if you don't have love, it's all for naught. 
And, and what the charismatic Pentecostal church needs to do, those who believe in the power of the Spirit, is we need to tie it back to the love and compassion of Jesus, which says, I, I'm not trying to use sick people as a prop to make everyone realize how spiritual I am, but my, my sole hope is to express the good heart of Jesus, where he's moved with pity when he's, uh, the scripture says he stands at Lazarus' tomb and he weeps. God weeping. And I, I think we need to recover the weeping Jesus in the church and, and not operate with this mindset that everything's about authenticating. Because when we go down this road of Jesus healed to authenticate his ministry, then we start doing that and saying, we're going to pray for healing so that everyone in the community knows that we're right. And who cares if the community knows that we're right? Of course we're right. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, we, 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 we want to be broken for people. And when someone comes to us with a demonic power, we don't want to make a show of it, but we want to stand in authority and in great love and say, oh God, bring wholeness to your son or daughter. We need the love of God to, to be the center and the heart of what we're doing. We, don't, we want holistic gospel ministry. If Jesus healed the sick and cast out demons, called the 12 to, and then the church did it, and it was always honored as a part of the gospel, we should recover that. We desperately need to recover it. It's also what is drawing the nations to Jesus, is healing and deliverance, dreams and visions. On the second hand, um, by God, we need, we need an encounter with love. We've got, we've had too much religion. I've had too much religion. You hear me? I've had too much critical spirit. We need an encounter of gospel love to permeate us and to move us. And, and we're not looking to stop people on the street to make a show of them, but we need to be so broken with compassion and agape father love for people that were moved that you're moved why don't you stand to your feet